Today we celebrate Epiphany, um, and we're celebrating the reality that the salvation that God has given to the world is something that's for everyone, that's meant not just for a particular people in a particular place at a particular time, but something that's universal and that has an appeal to all of God's creation. That's what we celebrate in the story of Jesus' birth at Christmas, which is bookended now by this day, this feast day of Epiphany, which today is the day of Epiphany. Oftentimes it doesn't occur on a Sunday because it's always January 6th, but today is truly Epiphany Sunday. Um, What we see in Jesus is a fulfillment of this theme that resounds throughout the Old Testament. This theme that God, the very particular God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, is not only the God of Israel, but is also the God of the nations, the God over all people. And this God's choice of Israel was never actually meant merely to bless Israel, but was meant to ultimately bless the world by means of Israel as his instrument. The world that actually God made, all of it, and the world that he loved, as we learn in John 3.16 especially. Uh, one key Old Testament text where this, is, this theme is foretold is in Isaiah chapter 60, which we read earlier, our Old Testament reading for today for the day of Epiphany. And the entire chapter of Isaiah 60 depicts the future and gracious salvation of a God who rescues Israel and in so doing gathers all nations into a future Zion of righteousness and peace. So it's this blessing and salvation to Israel that when it comes will bring blessing and salvation to all the world that as they gather in to be a part of it with Israel. And it begins... Isaiah 60 does, with this beautiful picture of God's unmerited grace. Verse 2, and we're going to be in Isaiah 60 primarily this evening. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Isaiah 60, verse 2. Into the darkness the light of God bursts forth in the world. Now, for those of you here tonight who maybe have been walking with Jesus for a good while and know your Gospels well, you'll gather that there's echo and resonance here with what we see in the beginning of John's Gospel, in the prologue to John's Gospel. These same kinds of themes come forth. You hear, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and we have seen his glory. There are the same themes of light and darkness and glory bursting forth in the Gospel of John and the announcement of Jesus in the beginning of his narration of the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This inbreaking of light into darkness, ultimately, that the Old Testament is longing for, looking forward to, Isaiah 60 is, is talking about, ultimately culminates in this end time vision of a new heavens and a new earth that we read about in the book of Revelation. See if this sounds familiar to what we read out of Isaiah 60. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. That is Isaiah 60, sorry. Now this is echoed in Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk. This culmination of what Isaiah sees and foretells in chapter 60 of 
now being told about in John 1 that Jesus is the inauguration of this and then in Revelation 21 that this is what's going to be ultimately fulfilled when Jesus returns. Now, no one deserves this flood of light into the darkness, just to be clear. There's nothing that we could have done as the human race, whether as Israel or as the Gentiles, to in some way manipulate God to bringing about this inbreaking of light into the world. It just sort of bursts on the scene in Isaiah 60 out of nowhere. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. God will arise upon you. And Isaiah 60 ends in verse 22 with this same theme hammered home that this is God's gracious and sovereign gift to his world. This gift of salvation. So verse 22, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. This will come about in its time because I've said I want this to happen. Not because you you deserve it, but because I want this to come about. And so God is saying that he will do it because of his gracious will and purpose for all of his world. No one provoked him. No one manipulated him. He chose it. He initiated it. He set it into motion. And that's just what we see being done in the birth of his son Jesus in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And this is a tremendously wonderful reality of this salvation that God has set in motion for his world. Now this, this salvation, something so wonderful and so beautiful and so rich, something that has been longed for for so many years before the time that it arrived in Jesus. For those of us who are trapped in darkness, this inbreaking of light provokes a response. Something so great in our midst and in our presence has to provoke a response. And it's the response that we see among the nations in Isaiah 60, also mirrored as we'll see by the Magi in Matthew 2, that I want us to consider together this evening as we ponder the worldwide salvation of God for us in Jesus and for everyone. And there are four aspects of this response that we see in Isaiah 60, each of which I want to put to you instructs us as followers of Jesus today in our present daily walk of faith, in our present life as we're seeking to follow him. So there's four things we're going to hit here. First, there is a leaving. A leaving. Verse 3, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And they do. These nations do come in Isaiah 60. They come from great distances. Verse 4, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your, Your sons shall come from afar. From great distances they come. And your daughters shall be carried on the hip, implying a, a a need for help. And, and this, the picture here is of a parent carrying their child on the hip. But they'll come from afar, from places of weakness. They'll come over the land from the east. You get these nations mentioned of Midia, Ephah, Sheba, Kibar, Nebaeah. Um, they come over the sea from the west, the ships of Tarshish in verse 9. What we get here in Isaiah 60 is a picture of a worldwide ingathering. From east, as far as the distant lands that they had heard echoes of, and from the west, across the sea, out into Spain, these nations are gathering and they're coming. So I want to ask you this, so what does it mean to leave? Because to come means that I've got to leave somewhere, right? To come somewhere else. Leaving is costly. It's a change. It requires a complete relocation. These nations that come had to leave their homelands they had to leave their cultures they had to leave what was safe they had to leave what was comfortable 
They had to leave their standard way of doing things. They had to leave their idols behind, their gods behind, in order to come to the light of God that was shining out of Zion. Now, it's easy to gloss over something like this, perhaps as basic as this, but we shouldn't, actually. Jesus makes the exact same claim upon us. His first call to the disciples is a very familiar one, isn't it? Perhaps too familiar sometimes. What does he say? He says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And what do they do in these early chapters of the Gospels? They're fishermen. They get up. They leave their nets. They leave behind their livelihood. They leave that from which they're trying to make their life work. And they put it all behind them and they follow. They come to the light of the world and they follow. And that's exactly what the nations do here in Isaiah 60. So I want to ask, why? Why would we leave something to come somewhere else? Why would anyone do such a thing? Why would they pick up from such a far distance and come to this land? Now, let let me give you an idea here from Isaiah 60. There, There is this theme of glory that resonates throughout the chapter. See it? At the beginning in verse 3, that the glory of the Lord, will, his glory will be seen upon you. And it goes on and on and on. Now, there are two Hebrew word groups for the concept of glory. One that communicates, and they're both here in Isaiah 60. One of them that communicates more of a weightiness and an impressiveness to God. And we see that in verse 2, that his glory will be seen upon you. That's the word there of weightiness and impressiveness. And then there's another word in Isaiah 60 that communicates, again, the same sort of general notion of glory, but that points more to the idea of beauty and attractiveness for God. And God will be your glory, it says in verse 19. That could also be translated, and your God will be your beauty. God is drawing the nations in. And so the point is that the manifestation of God's glory includes both the glory that impresses us, that sort of crushes us, you know, that overwhelming glory of God, and the glory that attracts us, that woos us, that draws us into his presence. And it's this bright and shining light of God in both of those aspects that is the answer to the question of why we would ever leave something so safe and comfortable and known and familiar in order to jump into something else. None of us, I want to put to you, will ever leave and respond to this incredible gift of the worldwide salvation of God and the glory of Jesus apart from seeing this glory in all of its radiance and all of its majesty in its beauty and in its weightiness drawing us to himself. We need to be crushed by the weightiness of the power of God. The power of Jesus calming the storm, raising the dead, healing the sick. And we need to be drawn by the beauty of his love, dying for us. Forgiving those who have put him on the cross while he remains on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Calling us to himself. You know, some of that beauty is communicated in another place where Jesus calls us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's deeply attractive. Jesus calling us to leave and come. Come to his place. Come to his light. You know, it's in the light of God and his lavish and wonderful grace and salvation that shines brightly through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, which is God's glory. And it's in, that, it's in that light that we're compelled to come. The nations are compelled to come 
to make this long journey, to leave what is familiar in order to embrace him. We have to see him in his impressiveness and in his attractiveness in order for our grips upon what is comfortable and what is safe in our lives to be loosened and to let go. Jesus is the great treasure, which in order to grasp means that we have to loosen our grip upon the treasures of this world, the pennies, the nickels, the dimes, maybe the quarters that we're holding on to and clinging to for life. It's the sight of his glory that draws the nations in. So the question I want to ask about this point of leaving is, do you see it? Do you see the glory of Jesus? Have you left and followed what is familiar, what is comfortable to respond to it? You know, leaving is something that we do once. It's something that happens that first big moment when we come running to God from wherever we were for the first time and embrace his salvation deeply with gratitude and with joy. But it's also, I want to put to you, something that we need to do every day because we often get on the wrong track. We often wander from the narrow road. The glory becomes obscured and our grasp starts to tighten on the things around us that are lesser than the God that has loved us so much. And so some of us need to see again in a new Jesus in his glory and leave in a new and fresh way, perhaps even this week, things that we're clinging to, things that we're holding on to in order that we might more fully cling to him and hold on to him. So we see them leaving, the nations leaving. The second aspect of the response that we see in Isaiah 60 is joy. Joy. In verse 6, the nations bring good news, the praises of the Lord as they come to Zion. They're leaving and they're coming into the light of God is not done begrudgingly, but with songs of praise on their lips. They're reveling in the good news of God's glory and of his light before them. You know, I wonder, have you ever had somebody give you something um, that you really wanted but you didn't really expect in such a way that your only response was either to laugh or to cry when you got it? We saw that kind of response in some of our children on Christmas morning as they opened up much longed for but not really anticipated gifts that were under the tree. You know, that just kind of sense of I'm, I'm overcome and I, I don't know how to process or register this other than to laugh or to look really funny or to look at the ground um, because I'm so overjoyed in what's been given to me. And I want to say that's a kind of picture of the joy of the people who respond to the light of God. Something so deep and so wonderful. The acceptance and the welcome of the God of the universe. A place among his worshiping people for us, for you, for me. That if we sit in its presence, just in the presence of this marvelous gift, that we're brought to that place like a child opening a gift that they longed for. And all we can do is laugh and have joy. What what does it mean to have joy? I'm not really sure that our world understands what it means to have joy. The most recent edition of the New York Review of Books has a cover article on joy uh, by a woman named Zadie Smith. And she tells of her first experience of joy in a British nightclub in the late 90s high on ecstasy, dancing with all kinds of sweaty people around her in the mid-morning night, rocking out to Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. And she got lost in this moment, as she relates in the article. Seriously, this was her first example of joy. And I I just want to say that, respectfully, that's not joy. Um, Joy is not getting lost at all, actually. It's actually being found. And not at peripheral levels, in our life, but at the most basic level of human existence, 
Uh, let me say this more. Joy comes in knowing that all of your deepest fears have been resolved. And that all of your deepest and ultimate longings have been met. And only when those two conditions are true will you truly know the reality of joy. And these things obviously come from the God who made us. The God of all creation. The God who sent his son in the person of Jesus. And the nations know this. Verse 9 it says, For the coastlands shall hope for me. Maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, maybe they don't know it really fully until they actually get there. But they're hoping for for God. They're hoping for this one for whom they were made. The only one in whom their longings and desires can be fulfilled. Isaiah 60 doesn't say, and the nations found life and fulfillment in their own gods because there are many different roads. No, it says they found their hope. They would hope in me. They'd leave those others. They'd find it in me. And those deepest places of fear in our hearts and those deepest longings that we have will be met once and for all. It is God who is our only and our ultimate hope. And it's only when he fills us up, not some chemical substance or anything else, that we can be truly lost in the present fullness of longings fulfilled and fears overcome. And that is joy. Or I could just say death has lost its sting. You know, every human life might sometime along its trajectory have a roar in it. But every roar finally ends in a whimper. Death is that ultimate thing that we fear behind all, every, all other fears. And Jesus has dealt with that ultimately. And joy is ours as a result of this. Joy is for the nations that come to the light. You know, for many of us, this rightful reality of joy is probably, in the light of God, is probably diminished in our own experience. I would say that's true for most of us oftentimes. And I want to suggest that it's often diminished by by scores of intermediate longings and fears that creep in along the way, along the road of life. Whether we'll make it over this next challenge that we're facing, perhaps this week or over the next few months, or ever figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life when I grow up, or, or ever, will I ever find love, will I ever get through this disastrous date tonight, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's these intermediate steps along the way that start to kind of get inside of us. And all of these things can diminish the ultimate relief and joy that comes from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's not that those things are necessarily unimportant. They're not. God cares about those things in our lives. God has something to say about those things in our lives. God comes alongside of us and uses the body of Christ to meet us in those things in our lives. But it's just that when those things begin to take a primary place in our consciousness, in our psyche, in our thoughts, in our emotions, that they squelch the joy that is rightfully yours and mine because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus wants his joy to be in us so that our joy may be full. Is it? Is it in your life? If not, what, what's zapping your joy? What intermediate bits of life are squelching the ultimate relief and rest of God's glorious salvation in your day-to-day life? Remember that by God's gracious initiative and act, you're on the inside of the only party in town. And let that color your experience the most in your day-to-day life. Now, a third response that we see here in the nations is submission. The nations come to serve the future Zion. They come to take a lesser place. And in verse 14, it says, they shall come bending low to you. And in verse 16, with the image of breastfeeding, we read that the nations give their supply to Zion. 
and serve Zion, serve God and his people. This isn't about the Gentiles serving the Jews, but it's about everyone together serving the king of the Jews, who is Jesus the Lord. So what does it mean to submit, this response of submission? It means to lay, out, lay down your life and to surrender. It means to say that Jesus is king and that you're not. But again, you don't do this begrudgingly in your life in the presence of the light of God, but you do it joyfully. The nations were running to Jesus, coming from far distances to, to, to God's light. Submission is the cost of entry into the light and life of God. We must say Jesus is Lord or we have no part in this worldwide uh, overflow eruption of salvation. But it's actually just a realignment for us to the position for which we were created in the first place. And when anything comes back into alignment with what it was originally designed for, it finds fulfillment in life and joy. You were never made to be king, never made to be your own boss, never made to make the call. You were made to play second fiddle, not first fiddle. And that would kind of stink if first fiddle was a pretty pathetic player and not as good as you. But in this case, the first fiddle is tremendously, uh, magnificently, unimaginably greater and more glorious and more wonderful than anything that could be compared to him. And this becomes then the way to flourish and to freedom and to relief and to a great side that the pressure is off, that God is God and you don't have to be. And you can say, hallelujah, praise be to God. Now, many of us will resist this step, this response of submission, kind of like Herod does in Matthew 2, where I mean, we probably won't go to that great of extreme, but, you know, Herod tragically starts to slaughter all the babies under two years old in Bethlehem, in the region of Bethlehem. Because he won't have another king. He won't bow the knee to another king. This news of one born king of the Jews is a threat. And it's a threat not just to Herod, but to those of us who want to live life on our own terms. And we can try to remain the ruler of our lives, but we miss the great party. We miss the wonderful adventure that faith in Christ brings. And ultimately, we find ourselves miserable in the meantime. So let me just ask on this one, where do do you need to let go again to surrender control of your life, perhaps this year as we look forward, to bow down and offer your life at his disposal? Fourth, finally, and a little more briefly, this fourth response of giving we see in the nations. In verse 5, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. In verse 6, they shall bring gold and frankincense. And these themes continue on throughout the chapter uh, of Isaiah 60. They, they're there in, in Psalm 72, as we read. They're there in Revelation 21. And the resonance, obviously, with Matthew 2 and the gifts that the Magi bring to the newborn baby Jesus are quite obvious. Giving is a response. There's a long history of this in the scriptures. Our gifts reflect the value of the giver. The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh communicate that this one that they're bringing the gift to is royal and is worthy. And so the leaving and the joy and the submitting and the bowing down are incomplete without our offering up to God the most valuable things of our lives. We don't give God pennies. We give him substantial, lavish gifts, radically generous gifts. Think about the woman who put the two coins um, in the box at the, at the synagogue in Luke 21. And, and Jesus praises her for this and holds her up as an example. And in a sense by saying, you know, yes, this woman got it right. You guys, this one, she got it right. He is worth it. He's worth everything. This giving that we see in 2 Corinthians 8, that the poor Macedonians in their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity and gave. Joy in giving, joy in generosity. We see it all over the biblical text. 
And yes, we do give our lives, but as Isaiah 60 talks about, and as the rest of the Old and New Testament talks about frequently, we give our stuff, we give our money, we give our treasures to the God who is worthy of these things. Not again begrudgingly, but with great joy. They're flocking into Zion and laying, bringing their wealth to lay it down before the Lord as an expression of the joy that they have because of the light and the gift of the salvation that God has brought into their lives. Is our response to this glory of God likewise similar? Do we embody this generosity with our money and with our stuff to the Lord who was so generous to us? Now closing with this illustration, which is simply Matthew 2. This response of the nations in Isaiah 60 is the response of the Magi in Matthew 2. The Magi leave. They left their lands in the east. If they were from Babylon, this was about an 800-mile trip, 20 miles a day. That's 40 days of an entourage and expenses and uh, inconveniences and dangers of travel. They left and they came. This was costly and dangerous, leaving what was familiar. The Magi, they had real joy in coming to the newborn king. Verse 10 of Matthew 2, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Their deepest longings were being met. The Magi also submit themselves before this king. The word for worship that is used here is is the word that they would use of giving homage to a king. But for Matthew and his readers like us, there can be a dual meaning to this. You know, almost a prophetic act by these Magi of bowing down before this king and worshiping him. And they submit themselves to him in verse 11. They fell down and worshiped him. And then these learned and wealthy men bring with them not just a long, not, they don't just go on a long journey, they don't just have joy, they don't just submit before him. But they bring with them these great gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and offer them up to Jesus, the newborn king. So I want to put to you as the Magi have done in the presence of such a great gift that is Christ the Lord, so must we respond to the light of God breaking into the darkness in the world and in our own lives, moved by this gracious, undeserved, impressive, and attractive glory of God in the face of Jesus. Amen.